0: I've got a little piece of business I'd like to get out of the way before I start talking. I have spent uh, most of my adult life in and around the metropolitan centers of Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, and New York. And that represents a string right across the northern or Yankee section of this country. And from the earliest times of my adult life up there, they had a custom that always seemed to me very foolish. In the summertime up there, in spite of the fact that it's the northern section of the country, it gets very hot. But no matter how hot it is, all the men, without exception, wear coats. Nobody ever takes coat off. And I thought, gee, why doesn't somebody break this up? If one guy took it off, I mean, a guy doesn't look any better in a coat than in a shirt. Why, why doesn't somebody break this custom? And finally, I met a guy from Atlanta, Georgia one time. And he said, well, he said, down south, he said, we're a little more relaxed than that. He said, everybody wears coats. But he said, when the temperature gets to a certain point, he said, they take them off. And I don't know what the temperature is tonight, but I'm going to break custom right now. If if we haven't reached that temperature, and I'm going to take this bloody coat off, and I'm going to enjoy a little southern comfort while I'm talking to you. <laughs> you know, in AA you can't you can't set any records. Uh, as soon as you give a statistic that's a, kind of a shocker, you know, somebody shows up a little later and they got another statistic on you, and they go you one better. Now Clarence stood up here this morning and he he said that when he came into Alcoholics Anonymous he weighed 130 pounds. Is that right? And you know I I wouldn't endanger my sobriety. I wouldn't lie to you. I wouldn't tell you something that isn't true. I just can't resist the temptation to tell you that when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I weighed 128 pounds. (laughs) The only difference is I don't weigh much more than that now. I started uh, using alcohol as a life aid when I went to college. I didn't understand anything about it. I didn't know why people drank. I know they did. Uh, As a young fellow, I was frightened of it. Uh, When I was a kid, I saw a few people drunk a few times. Scared the hell out of me. I was terrified the few times I had seen somebody gassed. It, It just seemed like looking at somebody who was crazy. And I carried with me all through my younger years a kind of fear of this stuff, which was not inculcated by my family. They drank a little bit, just kind of off and on. But the few exposures I had had to it were not uh, calculated to give me any attraction to it. But when I got down to the University of Illinois, where I started my higher education... I had, at that time in my life, a great desire to be one of the boys. I wished to be friends (laughs) with certain people, I really did, it was big to me. And a lot of the people I wished to be friends with were drinking. And in order to be friends with them, I saw clearly that I would have to drink too. So I did. And my first experiments with the stuff were rather ghastly experiences. There was no booze available at that time. Uh, at Illinois, this was 1929. The the drink was spiked beer. Alcohol, when I first went down there, was twenty dollars a gallon. In the few years I was there, it came down to eight dollars a gallon. Prohibition was approaching. But we always bought a gallon on the weekend and sat around and drank. And you spiked beer, for those of you who never had any, consists of taking a bottle of near beer and pouring some out of the neck, some of the beer out, and then pouring in some grain, you hope, alcohol. And tipping it up so it would mix and then drinking that. And gee, uh, I used to have three or four of these real fast because I I was nervous about it. And each time I did it, it's very peculiar. I don't, any of the drinking I ever did after that was not quite like it. It really wasn't a drunk. It was more like going out under ether. After a couple of these, uh, I would start going, and my head would begin to buzz and swat. And uh, then I could feel a kind of crisis coming on, a general instinctual crisis, and I would get up and leave and begin to walk, and inevitably the crisis overtook me, and all it involved was uh, throwing up. (laughs) It's a crisis enough. Uh, From the beginning, this damned stuff was expensive to me. Uh, I lived in a fraternity house and they had a rule against drunkenness. No rule against drinking. The rule was against drunkenness. If you were drunk in the house, it cost you five bucks. Five buck fine. And the definition of drunk was, if you threw up. (laughs) And I did a lot of throwing up, and I paid a lot of five dollars, and I couldn't afford it. But the friendship meant enough to me, so I kept it up. (laughs) I mean, there's a hook in this stuff from the beginning. I drank like that for a couple of years. I got over uh, onto gin after a while. Uh, We made gin out of the alcohol. Uh, You took some simple syrup and some juniper flavoring and you stirred it up with the alcohol and you drank that. It didn't make any difference. I always got this anesthetic Reaction, You know, can you remember you people that have had an operation, you know, they put the cone over your face and it goes, you can feel your blood boiling, that's what this stuff did. (laughs) And uh, after a while I began to think about it and meditate on it, you know. (laughs) And finally I got so curious about the whole thing that I got a hold of one of these boys, one of which I was trying to be, and I said... uh, you know, this stuff we do every Saturday night is great. I like it. But uh, for some reason or other, I enjoy being with you fellas. But I said, well, just just why are we doing the drinking along with these <laughs> things? He said, well, he said, I, I've been observing you. And he said, you really aren't very good at it, are you? <laughs> And I said, no, I can see that I'm not. And he said, well, your trouble is that you have not sought out any teaching or any counsel. You haven't accepted any help. And he said, you haven't really developed the technique of this thing. He said, your, your trouble is you haven't learned to take it easy. Now, he said, if you take it easy, in between the time when you start to drink... And the time when you throw up, there is a very brief interval of pleasure. (laughs) And he said, this is what we are pursuing. And you are missing. So I, I followed the man's advice and I discovered that it was indeed true. And if one did not hurry the libation so much, and that the buzzing uh, uh, was greatly uh, reduced, and that there was a period of five or ten minutes when one felt quite well before <laughs> beginning to feel quite ill. <laughs> about this time, one of the reasons that, uh, about this time, I began to pursue another line of pleasure. I I was interested in pleasure in those days. I began to court the girl who later later became my wife. And uh, this was such an interesting pleasure that when she went to the University of Michigan, I left Illinois and went there, too, so so I could see something of her. Now, this had an interesting lap over of pleasures because the pleasure of being with her brought me into a new uh, era, a new area of alcoholic pleasure because at the University of Michigan the subject of drinking was much better taught. It was better practice. It was now 1931, 32. Uh, They were getting some pretty good booze across the river from Windsor, and instead of training on spiked beer, I began to train on uh, imperial quarts of spey royal, scotch, which is quite a step forward. And I began to apply the principle of take it easy in a very disciplined way. And I began to discover that the negative aspects of this thing could be very greatly modified if it were orderly taken. And I finally reached the point after some months of intensive training where uh, I had a quite protracted period of pleasure when drinking. And the triumph of it all was when I reached a place that I could, at the end of a night's drinking, loaded like a Christmas goose, I could stagger up to bed, get into the bed, and when the bed began to swing around, instead of jumping up and running for the toilet, I would hang on and go around with it and pass out. by the judicious application of oblivion I had cheated the deep-seated process of human regurgitation, (laughs) which is a complicated way of saying that I had learned how to drink without getting sick, which was kind of big because after that I began to drink a great deal more. I began to enjoy some of the real benefits I would not say that at this point I was at all enjoying the deep benefits or the important benefits or the benefits which lead to alcoholism. I think this phase of my career represents, I'm not sure, but I think it represents normal drinking. I, I assume that normal drinking, uh, normal people are drinking for pleasure. This was my motive at that time. I don't know. I passed through the phase so rapidly, I really am not much of a witness. But I found out that uh, when half-gassed, I was in a state that was, to me, better than normal. And no fooling, and it wasn't an illusion. When normal, I was very tense. I would not have admitted at the time, nor would I have admitted what lay under the tenseness which was an exceeding anxiety. I just knew that when I got into certain situations in life, you hold your body when you're walking around, you're in some control of it, the control with me would step up and I would get rigid, particularly if I were called on uh, to confront a member of the opposite sex, Uh, rigor mortis practically would set in. Uh, I was easily frightened. When half-gassed, I was not frightened at all. When I had some booze in me, I was able to run around. I was even limber enough to dance. I got thawed out by the stuff in a way that was good. I'm nervous about the the devil. I, I want to give the devil his due in this thing. I, I don't want to say this stuff was all bad. I think there is a very positive gain in the use of alcohol Uh, for some of us alcoholics. My opinion is that it's for all of us alcoholics, but I'll say some because that that lets you squeeze out if you don't like what I'm saying. (laughs) I think all alcoholics, some let's say, find in alcohol some great positive benefit. And the great positive benefit for me in the beginning was that it relaxed me And it enabled me to go into situations when I was a young man and have a good time, a genuinely good time, when otherwise I could not have had it. I might have gone through the motions, but I would have been so damn strung up inwardly, it would have been a kind of a torture. With the booze in me, I could do it quite easily, and it made fun easy. And this is not a small thing, and that was my reason for drinking for a while. It thawed me out. It finally thawed me out so much that I I got married. (laughs) You have to be pretty well thawed out for that, you know. (laughs) You can't accomplish that when you're too shy. (laughs) I drank for pleasure for three or four years, It was the passage from pleasure drinking into more serious drinking was like a lot of other passages in alcoholism, from one phase to another. It was not well marked. It would be hard to go back and say, here you went into this other phase. I mean, it just kind of overlaps. There's something slippery and sliding about it. You slide into a new phase. But there came a time, several years later, after I was out of college and married, and now the problem was not how to have pleasure with the little lady, but how to support the little lady. And this produces even more anxiety. And my life had changed in many ways, and so my drinking changed with it. And it changed in a subtle way, and it changed in an important way. I have to go back for a minute and give you some background on how and why it changed in this important way. I was a guy who, at age 13 or 14, began to die spiritually. I went to sleep spiritually, first of all, up until... 11 or 12, 13, I had a religion. I was well average brought up in it. I believed the faith. I believed in God. I believed in what every Christian knows in a kind of an ABC way. My people didn't overdo it, but they didn't underdo it. And when I was 13 or 14 or 15, somewhere in there, I begin to fancy myself a smart young feller, and I begin to fancy myself very interested in science, and very interested and a great participant in modern ideas. It starts quite young. And then I begin to fancy myself a little too smart for stories about a man who, when some of his friends got hungry, instead of sending them sensibly back to town to the delicatessen, pulled fish out of the thin air. I begin to think that's pretty ridiculous. The same guy, when he came to the edge of the lake one time, didn't bother to get a boat like a sensible person. He just walked across the lake. I begin to be too smart for that kind of story. By a rather shallow process, but a process that is all too easy in this day and age. I got rid of my religion when I was quite young. I really shed it. I wasn't just going through mental maneuvers. I got rid of it so that in my guts and in my heart, finally, I really, genuinely believed that there is in this universe no power, more intelligence than a man, and not too many men more intelligent than this one. What a load for a future alcoholic to be lugging. I really believed that. It went deep. A person who is a genuine apostate, one who has in his heart turned from the faith, I don't mean acquiescence to some religious doctrine. I mean the deep heart's hunger and conviction that one lives one's days in the presence of the Almighty. When that is gone, a strange thing takes place in the life. I think it always takes place. I think it's only a question of when it shows. I think the man begins to generate fear. We call it by the euphemism, anxiety. I think that's a very poor name for it, but let it pass. The anxiety at the beginning does not come right out and say, boo. The anxiety just kind of sends up a smoke out of the heart and clouds the consciousness and irritates and bugs and drives the person. And because the person has no inner life to speak of and no inner awareness, they begin to go through this process of smothering it and running for all kinds of diversions. When this began to happen to me and when I began to be dead inwardly and fearful because of it, when I began to mistrust and fear my fellow man, and I did, and to be nervous in his presence, I began to seek all kinds of things, mental and instinctual and physical, to cover this up. I began to run here and there. I was a great guy for entertainment and party and fun. That was important to me. Later on, I was a great guy for business. I had a terrific hunger for dough. It's all right to want money. But I was abnormally dough-hungry. I wanted a lot of it. I wanted it early. I wanted success. I wanted somebody patting me on the back. The psychiatric name for this is insecurity, inadequacy. It's a, those are good enough names. I was always into situations which, one way or another, in business I could handle. But afterward, I would think, geez, how did I do it? You know, there was always the question, could I do it or not? I had trouble sleeping. In the morning, I would be gee'd up. I half enjoyed it and I was half in terror of it, and I was still young, and I had good vitality, and all it amounted to was a continual state of kind of high strung, like that. If you want to know what it feels like, though, just hold your arm like that for a while, and after five minutes, let it go. It's a relief. It's hard to hold one's person in this strapped-up way really not knowing why. I I did not know at the time what the roots of this thing were. I just knew that my days were driven and uncomfortable except when I had booze in me. The discovery came on quite slowly. I realized over a period of time that in the hours when I had booze in me, My state was in every way superior to normal. I'm not talking about the times when I slopped over and got drunk. I was not deceived by that. It was perfectly clear to me that when drunk I was a mess. I never for a long time wished to get drunk. But when I had the first two drinks in me, God, I could feel the cares and the worries and the nervousness draining off as if somebody had stuck a hypodermic in me and were pulling them out of my blood. And it is not an illusion. I, in this state, was able to go about, conduct my business, get along, the people I associated with, uh, were not only tolerant of this; a great many of them were participants in this right. And over a period of time, I began to see that alcohol and drinking were a great and positive good to me, and I began to use it in a calculated way, and I began to study how I might use it and reduce the defects of it to a minimum and keep the positive part, the gain, to a maximum. And that did not include debauchery. I like to cut loose on a weekend. I like to get gassed. I like to whoop and shout and make a damn fool of myself. That was frosting on the cake. But the cake was what came every day at noon. I didn't wait till after work. I begin my rite, my libation, my change of consciousness at noon. Somewhere very early in the game, I learned that you could get in trouble with this stuff. I just picked it up as a bit of knowledge, as you will, fairly common knowledge. I learned that people who used bows carelessly sometimes got sick as a result of it, not just hangover or sick to the stomach, but got frightfully ill, and that the prescription for these people was that they should never drink again. And very early in the game, in a quiet way, I said, this should never happen to powers. I undertook to study what some of the symptoms were, and I undertook most carefully to avoid them. And one of the symptoms was taking a hair of the dog, drinking in the morning. I wouldn't have drunk in the morning at pistol point. And far into the stages of my advanced alcoholism, until very, very late in the game, I never took a drink in the morning. But in my business, it was not and it is not considered bad form at noon to have a martini or two. Three is all right if it's very occasional. Four is definitely bad form, except on Friday. I became a regular noon drinker, and it did the trick. It changed consciousness. Uh, Everything immediately looked better. I think I was better on the job, people say that's an illusion, maybe it is, but anyhow it was a benign illusion and nobody disillusioned me, and circumstances did not disillusion me, and the boss who liked to drink himself did not disillusion me, and if it was an illusion I lived with it and it was a damn pleasant one and a very convincing one. And as I went along, I learned that you didn't have to sweat it out from noon until 5 o'clock. There was a little dip around 3, when life, which had been beautiful, was somewhat less beautiful. And then I learned to get on the elevator. I was in Cleveland about this time and go down to the main floor and over into the little saloon next door and have a couple of belts and go back up on the job. And life was then beautiful for the entire afternoon. And right after work, I went out, of course, and made life just as beautiful as it could be without overdoing it. There's the secret. To get to the crest, to get to the place where the relaxation is complete but has not slipped over into flaccidity, to get to the point where the speech is glib but has not become thick, to get to the point where the gate is jaunty but has not begun to weave, To get to the point where the emotions are mild and mellow, but in no wise sloppy, this is an art. I must say, uh, neither I nor any of my friends were perfect practitioners of it, but we worked at it. And we did a a fair work job of it. And sometimes we set up a little evening and and slopped the whole thing just to... (laughs) just to get over this fear of sloppiness, and then we went back to our day-to-day drinking so that life could be beautiful. (laughs) Now, the life-beautiful deal is a gag, but there's something serious under the gag. What I was pursuing was a state in which life was beautiful at night when I really got gassed and got home and could slop around and dream. That's beautiful. But in today, I would say, chiefly, I was drinking so that life would be painless. I didn't have any trouble with physical pain, but I had a hell of a lot of trouble with this pain of dealing with people, you know, uh, seeing how messy they were and how unpleasant. And the booze relieved that. When I had booze in me, people were not unpleasant. They were fine. Uh, It was painful to worry. And in my normal state I worried, and when I had booze in me I didn't. And I, over a period of years, gradually became a guy who, with the daily application of this potion, kept himself throughout most of his waking up, it was definitely better than and preferable to normal. I mean, normal to me was the hours between rising and noon when I was always ill. (laughs) You know, there's a lesson in this that's very hard to learn. There is no way in this life to cheat pain. There's an awful lot of people who don't realize that. There are very plausible... Uh, ways of life, including the use of drugs, where you seem to be cheating it, and all you're doing is damming it up. And sooner or later, the dam either leaks or it bursts, and finally it does both. Both. And from the very earliest days, the dam leaked with me as it leaks with everybody. And it leaked every morning. I begin to be sick in the morning. I do think that the application of as casual and jaunty a term as hangover to this is ill-applied. I think uh, alcoholic morning sickness is. It must be called something more serious than hangover after the first few years. I began to get out of bed in the morning, and the first 15 minutes weren't so bad because I was numb. I staggered around, and I went and looked in the mirror and I couldn't see much but in 15 or 20 minutes the sickness began to come on and I would begin to shake and and this stuff would crawl inside of me and the tremors would come and sometimes the nausea, the whole picture and sometimes the anxiety and sometimes the depression never to the point where I felt myself threatened I'm still young but where I was damned sick I could endure it because it was routine. I was this way every morning. I knew what to expect. (laughs) Even in the early days, there are shocks in this game, and I think the shocks are of immense value. Sometimes the truth punches through, and there is a moment of light, and the man can see his state, and then the fog settles, and he can't see it. But I remember one morning about this time, I was in Cleveland, I had a job downtown there, we lived out in Shaker Heights, and I was riding the rapid transit to work, and the rapid transit in Cleveland kind of weaves and rumbles, it's a little, not a very well-made coach, and I was sitting in the coach, and I had my hands beside me, not exactly sitting on them, but I wanted to keep them down so nobody would think I was waving at them. (laughs) And I looked out the window, and I caught myself. I realized I was drooling a little bit. <laughs> and I realized I was very slightly worried that I might be nauseated before I got to the city, but I thought perhaps I wouldn't be. And I worried a little bit that the boss might see my eyes when I got in, but I, I remembered I had a bottle of eye gene in my desk, and I could go in and doctor my eyes up. And suddenly, the light went up, and I, it suddenly occurred to me, Powers, you are now this way every morning. This is not unusual. This is routine. You are a man who every morning of his life is desperately ill this way, and who lives through these three or four hours in real agony of body and spirit, not overwhelming, you function, but you sit and sweat this terrible illness out to get through to noon when you can have a drink. And then the light went down and I began to lie to myself and tell tell myself that I'm a high-strung fellow and all us high-strung fellows have to live this way, and the lies started, and the baloney started, and the little moment of truth had no effectiveness at all, except that I remembered it later, and I remember it now. I think these moments of truth are very precious, and they are never meaningless, even though at the time they are immediately swallowed up in in the onset of this insidious business, where there is now a heart-hunger The hunger for booze, for God's sake, is not to produce a physical sensation of intoxication or drunkenness, is it? Would anybody in in the room, any alcoholic, say that is what you were pursuing? Something very much more deeply involved goes on here. It is said that this is a disease not only of the body, although God knows the body is heavily involved, certainly it is that, It is said, and nobody disagrees, that this is a disease of the psyche, of the conscious life, of the mental life, of the emotions, of the thoughts. But it's deeper than that, and none of the attempts at therapy at those levels succeed because the corruption and the disease and the hook goes deeper. It goes into the deepest part of the man. And I'm not going to try to tell anybody else's story, but looking back on it for me, even this early in the game, and I'm not alcoholic yet, the hook is in my body, and the hook is in my soul, and the hook is in my spirit. I'm drinking daily, seeking freedom from the misery of this life which I do not have enough. Spiritual center in me to support. I am on the false trail of a freedom which every man legitimately hungers for, and every man someday will find if he finds the right way. But I have taken a sidetrack into freedom. I have gone a cheap way out. It's still a spiritual hunger. And why else do alcoholics drink? Are alcoholics out to be damn fools and drool and fall on their faces and wind up in house? All of that's a byproduct, an ugly byproduct. Frankly, I think all of that is God's mercy driving you out of this blind alley. The real thing that is pursued, and at least for my money, is attained in some slight degree, just enough to keep a man going is a kind of release, is a kind of freedom, is a kind of adequacy. I know it slips over into self-defeat time and again, but there's enough reality in it to pull the man on, keep you coming day after day after day. You wake up in the morning and you think, oh God, it's awful to be sick like this. And something else he says, yeah, but go get through, get through, get the booze, get the relief. So what started out to be a pleasant and easy and unhurried and undriven pursuit of freedom and friendship and gaiety and relaxation and release? These aren't bad things. What started out to be that way? Because it is a cheating from the beginning winds up with this daily unpaid account of pain cheated today. And in the morning, the account comes due. The pain of the alcoholic illness is not just in the body. That's bad enough. It's not just in the mind. It is deep, deep in the spirit. This anxiety, this strung-upness, this this curse, this god-awful suffering, which, however, is relieved again as soon as you can get back to the medicine. It is a clever, it is a very well-organized, It is a very coherent piece of business. It doesn't seem a mystery to me that I got caught in this. It doesn't seem a mystery to me that other people in this day and age get caught in it. Up to a point it is an exceedingly plausible thing, looked at from the outside, looked at on the part of a person who has not gone through it. It just looks like some idiot throwing away all the good things in life poisoning themselves against all common sense and getting nothing for it but headaches. But I ask any any alcoholic in this room, was there nothing to it but headaches? For me, there was a thing in it of deep, deep import. It was of keen importance to me. As it began to deepen, as it began to move toward disaster... I didn't know consciously that it was doing this, but there is a knowledge that lies on the margins of consciousness, the kind of consciousness animals have when danger threatens. As as I began to sense that trouble was coming, and sometimes I didn't have to do it instinctually, sometimes the trouble was quite eloquent, I mean, sometimes the red lights flashed very plainly. Uh, I'll give you an example of the kind of red lights that were flashing at this time, pre-alcoholic red lights. I came home one evening from a hard day at the office. It had been a hard day, but I had overdone the right a little bit. I had anointed myself a little too heavily, and I was more than half drunk. And when I got home... I was impressed into a duty which I very much disliked. I found myself wiping dishes under duress. And I was too dull of heart and mind to fight it. I just stood there wiping the dishes. And as I stood there, a a wave of self-feeling came over me, a a kind of self-insight. I thought, by God... I know why I'm suffering like this in life. I know why I have to work so hard. I know why I come home to this kind of a dull, dreary home life. I am married to the stupidest human being that God ever hatched. (laughs) This is all my wife's fault. And this was such a release, such an inspiration, that I began to throw dishes. I threw a dish, a dish clear across the kitchen and it shattered against the wall and I thought to myself, that was great, so I threw another one. And this so stimulated me that I ran into the living room and began to heave furniture around. And I had a moment of clarity in the midst of it. Something said, my God, this is nuts. And something else said, keep it up. This is a lot of fun. (laughs) And the little woman uh, was having some kind of a dialogue of her own, but uh, the action she took was to run into the bedroom and grab the telephone. And I ran behind her and pulled her away from the telephone and picked up the telephone and ripped it off its moorings, breaking the cord, and I hove it through the window. And in the city of Cleveland, when you do that to a telephone, it puts in an automatic alarm to the police, who came in due order, and my stupid wife talked them out of taking me to jail. And the next morning, sitting in the rapid transit, drooling, I thought, by God, that really wasn't very funny. (laughs) That was a bad show. (laughs) I didn't have a moment of truth. I had about ten minutes of truth. (laughs) And it was real ugly because I couldn't talk back to it very well. Later on, I got very much better at talking back to the truth. But red lights of this kind begin to flash, and there begin to be episodes in my life which are funny, if you want to make them so, in the retelling. But I think perhaps you could guess that that wasn't really very funny at the time. Thank God we did not yet have children. I would leave it to your imagination to see what kind of an effect that kind of scene would have on children. A lot of the things we get laughs about in AA do have a funny side, but at the time, really were not too funny. I had reached the point of the flashing of red lights. Not yet alcoholism, but a state where the drinking, carefully pursued on a scientific basis to be rendered as harmless as possible, is becoming harmful in a way that one cannot escape. Recognizing from time to time, I think at this stage of the game, I will speak only of my own experience. Although I mustn't pretend that I, I don't see this in my brother alcoholics and sisters, I do. I think at this time the phase of the disease begins to develop, which the people who study this disease is say is a universal constant. All dra- drug addicts, including alcoholics, are colossal earnest and skillful liars. I think the lying begins at this stage because the stakes are so high. The red lights begin to flash. The guy says, yeah, gee, that was ugly. But something says, God, don't let that kind of thing interfere. Don't let anything louse up this drinking picture. And I think all kinds of efforts are made To bring the drinking under some kind of control. This whole business of controlled drinking is a pathological symptom. Normal drinkers, my Lord God, no normal drinker has to control his drinking. The question never arises. This fantastic effort at control... I believe, is an early symptom of the onset of the disease, and I, at my Cleveland state, was well involved in it. I was going way out of the way to be careful that this thing didn't get out of hand. I was alarmed at things like this episode at home. I was alarmed when I damn near killed a little woman one night. She went tumbling down the stairs and sprained her ankle. It isn't funny. And I begin to think, man, man, i got to be careful here. And I joined a gymnasium. I thought it might (laughs) help my health. (laughs) And I began to drink beer at noon instead of martinis. And I began to take steps. But along with these reasonable steps, they would be reasonable if the context were not this ghastly, along with these reasonable steps to attempt to contain something, there has to be something else. Because by this time the momentum has set in. And we are not dealing with a normal thing. We are dealing with days and months and years of cheating on life, damned up behind. And the pressure, the pressure of the cheated pain, the cheated part of life is pushing on the person. And there has to be a hell of a lot of inner self-deceit to keep this thing going into the continual daily if you're that kind of a drinker, use of this stuff. And because the grace of God is a mystery in its depth, but in its ordinary daily application to a human being, it's not such a mystery. Each man and woman bears in his breast the Holy Spirit of truth. Something inside you is always saying, not always accurately received. Our radar is always not well-tuned But the core of sanity is this very spirit which says, if somebody says, this room is painted jet black, something says, no, no, the hell you say. I mean, something is always scanning and saying, true, false, don't know, true, false, maybe. And something inside, when this disease begins to bite, says, powers, powers, trouble, look out for this stuff, you know. The, the, the truth begins to speak how to handle this, how to deal with it. You have to you have to lie to it. In our own way, each one of us, I'm speaking only of myself, but it, this part of it seems so clear to me. I became an earnest, oh, such an earnest, skillful, dedicated self-deceiver. When it would begin to appear what the truth is, that I'm headed for trouble, I would talk back from so many angles. I begin to amass data on the subject. I begin to read books. I begin to have little guarded conversations with people as to why it was a good idea to drink. I got one book called Liquor, the Servant of Man. And I studied it, written by a doctor and a chemist, saying that beginning with Noah, in spite of the evils of this thing, on balance it was a hell of a good thing for a guy to drink. And I thought, hooray for this! You know, this was grist for my mill. Over a period of several years, I ran this gamut of, of propping myself up inwardly with lies. While it was coming on, until I got down to New York, I I fell upstairs. Every time I got fired from one job, I got a better job, you know, black guidance. Something looks out for you while you're going downhill here. I got canned over in Detroit, I got a better job in Cleveland, and then I had a hell of a break, although I was in a mess over in Cleveland. I got a terrific job down in New York, lots of money, which I love almost as much as booze. They're closely associated. I loved three things. I love booze, I love money, and I love my wife. In that order. (laughs) First things first, you know. (laughs) I got down to New York. I had a very responsible job. They don't pay you money unless you sweat. I worked. Ten, twelve hours a day, six days a week. And I drank a jug of booze a day. Not to get drunk on, I got drunk weekends. This was just living drinking. And by this time I know I'm in trouble. And by this time I have made the experiment of trying to knock it off, and I have found that I can't. And I know I'm hooked. But I don't know that term yet, and I don't know what hooked means. I just know that I'm a guy that has to drink like this in order to keep going. And I lived down in New York from 1939 till 1940 in the last stage of this thing before it broke out in the open with me. I had one of the best years I have ever had in business. I was flying back and forth between New York and Chicago. I was given more responsibility all the time, and I just kept going on booze. And I don't know how I did it, and I am surprised that the crack-up, Gertrude says we all crack, we sure did, do, didn't come before it did, but when it did, it was clear-cut, and the passage this time from one phase to the other was not nebulous, it was not vague, it was sharp, clear, and unmistakable, because it was all caused by a change I made in my diet. (laughs) I was running along like this and I suffered like hell, but it seemed to me that probably maybe I could live the rest of my life this way. But in the spring of 1940, I, I, uh, I began I begin to eat lightly because I thought a man working as hard as I uh, was working shouldn't overeat. <laughs> and I began to live largely on black so- coffee, uh, toast, and clear soup, with very little else. And somewhere along the line, I noticed that the soup was rather fat and unpalatable, so I dropped that out. And a little later on, it seemed to me that they weren't making the toast as well as they used to. It seemed to be quite scratchy. <laughs> so I dropped that out. And one morning at the office, I was trapped into lighting a cigarette for a lady copywriter who had came and come into my office, and my hand just went like that, and the lady looked at me and said, holy smoke, what's with you? And after she left the office, I thought, my Lord, I have made a capital mistake. i I I just got to rectify this. I know what's wrong with me. It's that damn coffee. (laughs) So I dropped that out, and I ran for a few weeks on almost nothing to eat except booze. And at the end of that time, my crack-up came, and it came suddenly one day... I began to have some convulsions, thank God I was out home, we were living at Stamford, Connecticut at that time, I had three or four convulsions in my room, I went upstairs and locked myself in the room when I felt them coming on, and when I came out of the convulsions, I was off my rocker, I was out of my mind, I knew it. That was a manic depressive break, and in that kind of a break you do not lose insight, but I knew I was out of control, and I was scared to beat hell, and my family was scared, and we got some doctors on the scene, and I was knocked out good and deep for the first time in my life. I don't know what they gave me, but I think they gave me a hell of a big belt of hyacinth. And I didn't come to until the next day. And when I came to, I wasn't home. I was in bed. It wasn't my little bed. It was a strange little bed. And there was a guy sitting at the foot of the bed, and when I asked him who he was, he said, I'm going to be with you for a few days. (laughs) And by a sudden flash of insight... At that time I happened to look up and see there were bars on the window and I realized that I was not the type of man who has enough vitality to ever wind up in jail I realized where I was I was in the nut house And 2 hours later after they got me up and washed me down with a fire hose and gave me a leather vest I realized that I was not in the drying out part of the nut house I was in the nut part of the nut house And it was a hell of a shock. This was the first of a kind of experience which I think is immensely significant and immensely important. I'm speaking of a type of experience in the progress of the disease alcoholism. The disease progresses to a certain point where you can keep it undercover by talking about your ulcers and your sinus and your business troubles and a lot of baloney like that. Then it comes to a point where where the red lights are flashing so much and the hell on earth is so much that you are obviously alcoholic. But even in the stage of obvious alcoholism, the downhill momentum is immense, and it seems that no amount of pleading, no amount of threatening on the part of external forces or internal forces, no kind of resolve, nothing will stop this thing. But occasionally, there is a peak-up. It may occur for any one of a dozen reasons. Maybe the guy racks up a car. Maybe he half-kills one of his own children. Maybe he winds up in a bug house. Whatever it is, suddenly the momentum of this thing is broken, and the circumstances are so extreme that the guy is shocked out of his capacity To maintain the lie. His liar is paralyzed. In the crisis, in the alcoholic crisis, there is a terrific opportunity. The man is defenseless against the truth. He can be reached at that time. I think it's terrifically important. The first two weeks in this bug house, my whole structure on which my alcoholism was built was deflated. I couldn't say a thing. To support my position. I walk around there from one flowing tub to the other. I wake up in the middle of the night. I hear the brethren shrieking and screaming. I see them giving each other molded milk shampoos. Something says, Powers, we are in a hell of a mess. (laughs) And Powers has no answer. This is the characteristic of the alcoholic crisis. Whatever the circumstances are, the man or the woman temporarily is so smacked by this disease, by the grace of God in disguise, by the left hand of God, if you please. Because unpleasantness on this earth is not a place where God's hand is slipped. It may be a place where his hand is being applied in utmost mercy to this Pitiful structure of lying in the teeth of this oncoming desire, of this oncoming disaster is ruptured by the force of the disaster and at that time the guy might listen if somebody threw some truth at him. But it all depends on whether or not at such a time he comes into contact with real knowledge, with truth in this area. And we in AA are spoiled rotten. We think the truth in this area, and by truth I mean that which works. Any jackass can sit around and spin theories. Anybody can go to the library and write 15 doctor's theses on this subject. I don't want to say anything against that. That's got its place. But if you're dying of this disease, the only thing that's useful to you is the truth. I don't mean truth with a capital T yet. The truth you would fall on your face before in a door. I just mean truth where it sinks down into the blood and flesh of this life and where you can grab hold of it and where it begins to pull you out. And this truth is around. But it doesn't lie loose on every street corner. I think we who have been drawn into it in such a way that it has become our very life tend to forget that it is a fairly rare commodity. There are how many of us? 300,000? And there are 20 million alcoholics. There are 20 million people on this earth who need it at the point of death. At the point not only of death of the body, but death of what is deeper than the body. Death of that out of which the body springs and of which the body is, is a pale costume. That's the kind of death that's threatened. There's this desperate need of the truth. The man may get it in a crisis if it's there. If it isn't, the crisis passes. And he passes out of the blessed weakness where he can't lie to himself into the cursed strength of the ego, the desperate, God-awful strength to go back and be a self-liar again and a self-deceiver again. And that's what happened to me this first time. I didn't run into anybody who knew anything about this disease. I got a lot of help. I got propped up medically. I got my psyche combed over, uh, you know, and my libido shined up, and uh, what the hell. (laughs) They gave me a lot of vitamins and tender, loving care and scotch douches. Don't get scared. That's just where they squirt you with a fire hose. And uh, under the influence of this, I was overtaken by the alcoholic's worst enemy. My health, my health came back. And I finally got to the point where I could go to the mirror in the morning and look in, and like the fellow says from Brooklyn, I didn't recurl anymore. I was was able to face powers again and say, Powers, we're going to win, you know? Uh, My invincible soul. Ye heavens. The point of collapse in this business is a dangerous, desperate, terribly precious point. And you pass through it out into the place where there's no crisis, and then the momentum begins again, and down you go. God knows where this thing, where the depths of this disease is. Maybe God doesn't know. I don't know. The Almighty, the Omnipotent, the Omniscient must know. All I know is that to begin to explore the lower depths of this disease is an experiment which no human being should make. It's too terrible. And there is grave danger in not capitalizing on these crises. I came out of that place all propped up, all full of health, all rewired, back into normal life as bad as new. Now I've taken, uh, for some reason or other, a lot more time to tell the, this part of the story. I got to hurry. I'm now at the place where I am clearly in the grip of disaster. There's no more question of lying about that it's all right. I got out of that place. I knew I had had a hell of a bad experience. I was scared. There's nothing funny about being nuts. It's good for laughs later. The idea that the the insane are somehow comfortable or happy is one of the cruelest and stupidest of common delusions. It is not so. It is among the greatest of human tragedies to lose control of your organism, of your body and mind. And I knew it. And I came out of there, and I did know that I should do what they told me to do. They said, we don't know whether you are primarily an alcoholic who behaves very nuttily, or a nut who drinks. (laughs) But they said, we do know that you should never touch the sauce again, or you may be back in here with a leather vest on. And I left there, and I said to myself, I will not drink. I will not drink. The part of this disease where the person is under the influence of craving has never seemed insane to me. Where the person is crying out, where every cell of the body says, Give me the sauce, give me a drink, where you will cheat and steal for a drink. That has always seemed to me very sick, but not crazy. But when a person has no craving at all, when they have been restored to health of body and mind so far as possible, where they walk out into the world without the slightest reason for a drink and are in those circumstances able to persuade themselves that one little drink wouldn't hurt them. That, I submit, is nuts. And that's what I did two weeks after going out of that bug house. This is the mental obsession. It is not related to physical craving. This, I submit to you, is one of the darkest, most subtle most insidious forms of insanity that exist and i do not think that is an exaggeration i drank again and then immediately of course the the thing took me into its grasp i kicked around for a while i tried to drink a little bit every day but within a few weeks i was back right going again within a few months i'm up to a quart a day and a year later i'm nuts again and this time uh Instead of my company paying the freight for me to get well, I had to pay the freight, so I went to a little cheaper nut house. And they weren't so heavy on the tender, loving care in this nut house. And they didn't sit around debating whether or not uh, what I was. They decided right away that they better tackle the nut angle. And I was whisked into the back section, and I was given some metrazole shock treatments. And I will spare you a description of what shock treatment is like. It's given by electricity in this day and age with a lot of pre-medication, and it's relatively painless because they get you full of Dutch courage before they take you in, and then they shock you across the temples, and if they don't belt you unconscious with the first one as you start to go into your convulsions, they hit you with another belt of electricity, and as you go into your full shock... Which takes you up to the point of death, your body turns blue, your breathing stops, you almost die. All of this is accomplished in oblivion, but at the time I was given shock treatment, they, they were pioneering with it. <laughs> <laughs> they had not yet discovered how to give it with electricity. It was given each time with just short of a lethal, that is to say, a deadly killing dose of metrazole in the vein. I can remember the needle going in, a great big hypodermic about that long, and then the thrust, and there was a sensation of odor as it started, and then a physical sensation as if your body were doused with naphtha and somebody lit your feet. And it went on from there into this full crisis of death, uh, quite literally. The unfortunate part about it was if you were not so lucky as to lose consciousness, As you, if you went into this in full consciousness, it was just too bad. They couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't give you any more metrazole, it would kill you. I had three of these a week for four weeks, a total of twelve, and I was fully conscious in eight of them. And I don't know to this day what the effect of that was on the body and the mind, but I know what the effect was on the spirit. Because when I got dragged out of the last shock, back into my room, I had for the first time in my adult life acquired a little humility. I was not only shocked to the point where I would listen listen to the truth, I was shocked to the point where if I had believed in God, I would have cried out to him in desperation to lead me out of the nightmare that my life is going down into, and I have no hope. But instead I lay in the bed after the phase of wondering who I am and what I am has passed off, and I thought, what is going to become of me? This time I had the immense good fortune in this state of crisis, in this state of shock, in this state when my normal, self-deceiving, lying structure is destroyed, By the terrible mercy of the dark aspect of this disease, I had the good fortune to run into a man who himself did not have real knowledge on this subject, but who knew where it was. I ran into a doctor. My doctor, the guy that gave me shock, afterwards said, Sonny, we don't think we've done you any good. We think you're just about as buggy as ever. We're awful sorry. We think that you're going out and drink again. We think you'll be back. And I said, but isn't there anything anybody can do? And he said, yeah, there is. It's kind of offbeat, but I'll tell you what it is. He said, there's some people over in White Plains who have got just about what you got. Alcoholics, said, sure as hell, what you are, whatever else you got. And he said, these people seem to have found a way of helping each other when nothing else will help, when we medical people can't help. And he said, I would suggest you go over there. And so I went to my first. I didn't. He told me the thing had a God angle, and I gave him a hell of an argument. I explained I was <laughs> too intelligent for that. <laughs> but. He was a pretty sharp old boy. He said, Well said, We've had the great brain now in the tank here twice. Maybe you better just go over there and forget the intelligence. <laughs> and I said, God, I, I said, I don't think I could take it. I've been to two universities. I I have this highly developed humanitarian scientific outlook on life. I really don't like that. And he said, I said, I don't think I could get into one of these come-to-Jesus things and sawdust trail. He said, you are a man who probably will die if you don't find something. He said, why don't you go over there anyhow and jump in the sawdust with these people and see what happens. A meeting, I went with one of the things a person needs to get this program. I went with a desperate desire for help. I wish deep in my heart to be delivered from the place in life that I had arrived at. I think that is a very important thing. I dragged with me an immense structure of prejudice. I dragged with me a deep conviction that all talk of whatever kind about God is for peasants and for kids, not for grown-up people. In spite of that, at my first AA meeting, I was immensely helped. The power of this thing got... And although I'm a guy who didn't make it at the first blush, I will say that after my first meeting, I never again, and right up to this day, was without hope. And up until that time, I had spent many days and weeks and months without hope. And I think that's a dangerous condition for an alcoholic. After my first meeting, it was crystal clear to me that there was a power at work here, there was a force at work here, and that these people that I saw standing up and telling their stories were most clearly not deceiving themselves. It was crystal clear that they were sick in the same way I was, many of them even nuttier. And it was also quite clear they were not deceiving themselves, they were getting well I came around to more meetings, I went to a lot of meetings, I began to run around saving souls and keeping a (laughs) scorecard, and I began to enjoy myself thoroughly, and I stayed sober, and as time went on I began to get sane, conspicuously sane, because I had been conspicuously insane, and the turn is conspicuous. I have to hurry over this period, but I had they killed the fatted calf. It was the return of the prodigal. they only kill one, however. The second time back, I must hurry ahead of myself a little while. that the second time back, they don't kill the calf. <laughs> don't abuse the parables. But I at the end of six or seven months was clearly a citizen who had a hold of this thing. I loved it, I ran around, I did a lot of it, two, three, four meetings a week, but I never bought more than about 10% of it. Isn't that amazing? I never bought more than a little bit of the first step and a little bit of the last step. I loved the fellowship, I loved the activity, but the program, you see, after I was sober for a while, I thought, to hell with it. They told me to take it easy, I will take it easy. Uh, the God business, well, I'll put that in a suspense account. And so I went through the phase, which is so easy to go through, thank God it's a minority experience, but it can happen, of actually participating in the benefits of this program and keeping reservations of such magnitude that the full power of it never got to me. And I begin to be eroded from within By my own ideas, I begin to change the mixture. Whereas for a while it was 80% AA and 20% powers, although a powerful 20%, a little later on it was 40% powers and 60% AA. And after seven or eight months it was 90% powers and 10% AA. I arrived at the point of dropping out of meetings because that seemed to me a little extreme. I liked the fellowship, but I didn't want to overdo it. And then I thought, now what would make this perfect? This is a good setup, very sane. It is maturing me. It is bringing my psyche up to a point of great strength. What would make it perfect? That would be that if just occasionally I could have a little drink. If a person keeps within themselves this kind of nonsense, it's perfectly possible to nourish the seeds of your own destruction while putting on a pretty good show. Clarence, you must have seen a lot of this. A pretty good show of being a smart AA, getting up here and telling everybody about what a wise guy you are, and believing less and less of it as you go on, and the time comes when the insanity returns, not the craving the mental obsession that says, well, go have the drink. And if it doesn't work out, we are now safe. Because if it goes bad, we'll come back here to AA and be a success again. Under those circumstances, I drank again. Under those circumstances, in six weeks, not a year, I went nuts again. And under those circumstances, just before the man with the white coat and the butterfly net got to me again, I got back to AA again. Up to this point, it's all very clever. The only thing is, I sat through that meeting that night in the back of the room, eating crow, very humble. You know, I knew that much. I was all puckered up. And I sat back there listening to the speaker And as the speaker talked, I thought, well, in three months, they require three months sobriety in my group before you speak, in three months I'll be up there telling them about my slip. Only the next day I was drunk again. And the day after that, and then I was sober for a little while, and then I was drunk, and then I was sober for a little while, and then I was drunk and instead of three meetings a week, I begin to go to six. And instead of doing it all myself, I begin to have little conferences with other people, what I should have done in the first place. But now I had lost the free ride, the free gift. In alchemy, there's a saying that if you're going to make gold, you have to have a little gold to start with. If you're going to be sane, you've got to have a little sanity to start with. If you haven't got any when you come to AA, God gives you a little bit. You can't get this program at all unless you got a little sanity. During the time when I could have let my little sanity grow into enough sanity to let this be my way of life, I lived this program in such a way that I reached the point where of my own free will, I did what the Apostle Paul has described in very revolting terms. Paul says the man who has tasted the new life and has gone back to the old life is like a dog who has returned to his vomit. This is playing funny and smart with something in life that is too sacred and too important to be kicked around. I took my free ride, I took my free gift of sanity, and instead of converting it into the life of sanity, I ran it out. And when it was out, I was just myself. And I went back into the madness. And now that with every bone in my body I wanted it back again, I didn't have the little spark of sanity that it takes to make the first contact, the first little. Spark across from the dark, desperate, sunk state to where the light is. I, I, I saw it out there. I came to meetings. I looked around me. I saw that people were sane and getting saner. And I went out of the meetings and I drank again. The full obsession was on me. But I did everything I did in the first place and doubled it. And then I trebled it. Nothing worked. I got back into AA four years later, seven more nuthouses. I turned into a, a guy who drank very little, I drank a pint a day, most of the time I was on drugs. It's a long story, I won't go into it. Uh, there are places in this disease a man or a woman should not go. The death of the body is nothing. The death of the man is is an unholy horror. It should not occur. And that is what this disease threatens to accomplish, the breakup of the conscious individual, the smothering and strangling of the spirit. And I lived through some phase of that. I don't know where it leads, at the extreme. And I got to the point at last I read the book when I had enoughness left to do it And it says in there that 25% don't get it. And I thought, well, maybe that's me. I did only one sane thing in all that time, and I'm coming near the end. I've talked longer than I usually do or want to. That's the way it goes. During all of this time, this hell. Alcoholism up to AA is bad, but it ain't too bad. Active alcoholism, after you've known AA, is a a screaming horror. You lose in AA, you lose. You lose your innocence. It's never the same afterward. Never the same. It bears no resemblance. They say it spoils your drinking. It does worse than that. And a man who has known this life can never know a moment's peace until he's back in it again. And every moment out of it, by contrast, and without the least exaggeration, is, is a time in hell, a separation from life, decency, and from the source of life and decency. And I thought if I ever get back, well, I'll learn something I haven't seen in the program, or maybe I'll have a big spiritual experience. You know, a light will go on and a flock of doves will fly by. It didn't happen like that. There came a time when just repeated failure and repeated torture had finally squeezed the self-confidence, the last trace of self-sufficiency out of me. And I was taken in the week following Easter in 1946 into Gotham Hospital in a full case of DTs. And after five days of that, I came out of it reeking with chloral hydrate, but strangely clear in the mind. And I had an experience that day, which I suppose you could call a spiritual experience, although there was no emotion connected with it, and it was purely intellectual. I don't mean something you learn at school. I mean merely the capacity to see something without any great feeling. I lay in the bed up there... Having come out of these rams and swats, and I had periods of what I would only call intellectual clarity. And in those periods, it came to me with great force, although not emotional force, the force of truth. I saw beyond any doubt or debate what I had not seen in Alcoholics Anonymous before. I saw that this thing works because it is true. I saw it works because it is a peculiar kind of truth. I saw it works because it is truth distilled by a process which is not common into terms of precious clarity, into terms of leanness where there is no fat, where any ten-year-old child can understand it, and any, any man struggling on the borders of insanity, if he can move over just close enough to marshal a a, a modicum, a, a smitch of intelligence, can catch on to what people are talking about here and begin to participate in the strength of it. I saw that every word of these 12 steps, I don't want to get excited about divine inspiration. Leave that aside for the moment. I happen to believe it's true. But in addition to divine inspiration, or as part of the divine inspiration, I saw that this heritage, it's called a legacy, it is literally that, is so precious that not a word of it can be ignored, and that no man, God save us, can dare to do what I did, to cut out whole chunks of it. I mean, this is arrogance of the most frightful kind. I don't mean it's anything you condemn. It's just that a man standing on the brink of of death who is given some medicine mustn't presume to fool with the dose. He must take the medicine that's offered. I saw. I saw what my mistake had been. I saw how far I had been in that first year, in that free ride, how far I had been from having what it takes. What it takes isn't much, just the humility to bow your head before something greater than yourself. If you don't like the word God, don't use it. But anybody can admit the possibility, which is all this program requires, of a living power somewhere. There's nothing unscientific about it. There's nothing irrational. The program is so beautifully constructed that nothing more is required. I saw I had not met this minimum requirement and so had turned away back into this darkness. This was my passport back. I'll only tell you of the first, of, of what it was like coming back. A guy who has been out like this and who comes back doesn't know he's back. There's no assurance that it isn't just an interval between drunks. You sit in the meeting and you think, oh God, is. Would it be possible that I'm making it again? I went weeks, months, and it became a kind of a terror. I thought, oh, could I be making it? And then the fear of another relapse became some kind of a horror. And my friends in AA and the 24-hour program were my salvation. They said, oh, oh, forget it. Live it one day at a time. And I did. I clung to the one day at a time things, and and now, now I was praying at last. And I just one day at a time I said, Please, I, I'm a fool, I'm an idiot. I I give up the freedom by which I could commit this insanity again. If I don't give it up, take it away from me. I give you power of attorney. Lead me through these days. Give me back my membership. And sometime after a year, I was sitting in a meeting one night. And I wasn't torturing my soul with this question. I had forgotten myself for a minute. I was caught up in somebody else's story. That's what is good for us in this. We're able to get out into other people's troubles enough to forget ourselves. And it came to me quite clearly, without my seeking it, as a matter of sure knowledge, that I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous again. And I felt and knew what membership is. The membership is the participation in a body. And membership is life, and separation is death, and it's that clear. The hand is a member. If you chop it off, it's a piece of meat. Only as a member of the body, participating in the flow of the body's blood, is it anything but a monstrosity. And I felt myself grafted in again. And I felt myself a participation, a participator in this flow, this literal flow of which we are the beneficiaries and the custodians of this priceless, highly distilled truth, under the truth, who walked the earth 2,000 years ago in the body of a man. Thank you.
1: Again, Tom, we thank you for being with us, I know each of us has been blessed here tonight. Would you rise and join me in the Lord's Prayer in closing? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thy is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.